Hello, Four Sober Chicks podcast listeners. We are Heather, Meredith, Dana, and Tracy, four women recovering out loud. We gather here from around the world to discuss all things related to alcohol addiction, sobriety, and various paths to recovery. We get real about the highs, the lows, and the amazing reality of living a sober life. This podcast is a creative collaboration by women, for women, and for anyone who supports women. Hello, Four Sober Chicks family. I'm Heather, and joining me today is Dana, Meredith, and Tracy. And we have our very, very first male guest. Very excited. Uh, Charles is joining us today. And before I read his bio, Charles is very special to us um, because when Dana Meredith and myself and, and Lisa at the time decided that we wanted to do a podcast, we knew that Charles was doing podcasts and we asked him if he would like let us pick his brain and you generously gave your time to us. And it was a real amazing kind of uh, platform to start us out on. And you really helped us with some great ideas about kind of setting up and what we needed to do and you calmed our nerves. So you're kind of like instrumental in in the Four Sober Chicks as a silent um, supporter. So we really, really appreciate you and taking your t- the time you gave us and the amazing information that you shared with us. So that's where I want to start by saying thank you for sure. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. And uh, I will you know, continue to be a supporter. Uh, love the show. Love what you're all, all about and what you're up to. Appreciate that. All right. Charles Gosset is a uh, certified life purpose coach and a certified professional recovery coach. With his full uh, with his business, Full Integration Coaching, based in Oklahoma City, his focus is on empowering passionate difference makers to lead courageous, authentic lives so that they can find and fulfill their purpose, whether it's the purpose of a lifetime or the purpose of this time in life. Since 2014, he's helped servant leaders, creative professionals, social entrepreneurs, and others lead, create, and innovate on purpose. Clients include business owners, leaders, healthcare professionals, published authors, performing artists, and nonprofit founders, among others. Charles is the host of Live Your Purpose podcast, where he features compelling interviews with passionate difference makers in the Oklahoma City metro area. And we will uh, attach your website, which is fullintegrationcoaching.com when we kind of post all of this. So thank you so much for being here. So tell us a little bit about your uh, sober journey and um, what you have decided to do with all of this. Yeah. So thanks again, all of you for having me as your guest and the first male guest on the show. It's an honor and and I don't take it lightly. I feel the weight of uh, of that responsibility in a good way. So it's, it's a pure pleasure to be on the show with you. Yeah. So uh, my story is I grew up in Oklahoma City. Uh, Oklahoma, with a mother and a father and uh, a little older sister, and in suburban Oklahoma City, had a good upbringing and lots of, of family around me. We had sometimes at my grandma's house on my mom's side up to like 40, 50, 60 people 
for these sort of Southern uh, type gatherings and that are have a unique Oklahoma flair. So all these, uh, out, I had lots of time outdoors. I was very involved in sports. Uh, I grew up in those days when you went home, uh, when the street lights came on and, and you could stay outside all day. So those days are probably gone for most of us, but um, that describes sort of in a snapshot how I grew up. Uh, lots of love, lots of care, uh, lots of support, lots of resources. Uh, we were not wealthy and it came from a, from a blue collar family. So um, I, I noticed early on that I was that I really liked school. It turned out I was academically gifted and uh, was involved in sports and I was somewhat talented in sports. And I loved baseball, especially. So I grew up with those things in my life too. I was in school, I was a high achiever, uh, always towards the top of, of the class and went to a pretty large uh, school district. And uh, that was really satisfying early on. But somewhere around maybe the sixth grade, so in those, we called it elementary school then at that age, but and then junior high, now they call it middle school in most places. Somewhere around that awkward time, things changed for me, and I didn't know what it was then, but I developed anxiety that was pretty severe most days and depression that accompanied it. And so looking back now, I can say that really there was a lot of good things in my life. My family was not perfect. There were challenges, uh, but I had a lot of love and support and access to even mental health care uh, at, the, at that age. So um, I didn't really find anything that seemed to work for me to address that anxiety. It was hard to fit in for me. I was definitely considered a nerd in many ways. I had the advantage of being athletic and uh, and pretty quick with my humor, so I could kind of fit in. But I always had this sense that I was apart from uh, with other groups. I had some close relationships, but it just never felt like I really belonged, which I found out later is pretty common for many of us with uh, alcohol use disorder or substance use disorder. And nothing really resolved that conflict, you know. Uh, so by the time I was about 15 years old, I had had access to more than enough alcohol to cross over that line into intoxication. And I can still remember it well. And again, many of us can remember those initial experiences with intoxication. And it was just like, it was gone. The anxiety the depression, the sense of isolation or disconnection was gone. And of course it came with that wonderful experience of you know feeling intoxicated. So extreme joy, rapture, all of that. And, and I thought pretty early on that I, I was gonna need to make this a regular part of my life. So it was, it was very um, you know, just groundbreaking and, and life-changing for me from those first couple of experiences. So I had access to alcohol in different ways. Um, I also had, you know, psychologically, I had a lot of anger, uh, had some rage going on, probably some trauma at that point, for sure. Um, and, and that didn't have a place to go either. So, uh, you know, as I entered into high school, still feeling disconnected with a pretty big chip on my shoulder, 
uh, I started getting into, you know, some violence and, uh, you know, just rage looking for a place to happen. And so got into some trouble there. Thankfully, I found a way out from, you know, a little bit of gang involvement and uh, some stealing, petty theft. I never got caught for better or worse. Looking back, uh, it probably would have been better, but I was not caught and, uh, you know, carried firearms for a while and, uh, you know, really was looking over my shoulder on a daily basis. And that wasn't the life for me, you know, um, really what what I see now looking back is that I, I was really just looking to belong, looking for a, a way to be safe in this body. And with this particular, this peculiar personality that I have that uh, really longs to connect and uh, at a deep level and be genuine and, you know, looking for a place to have meaningful conversations, that's how I'm wired. And when things weren't going that way, it really, it really frustrated me. <laughs> so that's the simple story. Um, I did, you know, have uh, some realizations early on that maybe alcohol was an issue. Uh, I was also using cannabis by the time I was in high school, and and that that was pretty much around all the time. I always had a bag of something and a can of something, you know, available. It wasn't every day, but it was throughout the week and definitely on the weekends. Uh, and then, you know, mixed in with some of that violence and theft and some of the other misguided behavior. Uh, in my... Uh, in my late teens and then into my 20s, I did attend college. So at a major university, started off there and my mental health really deteriorated. I was away from home. Um, I hadn't been away from home that long before. I didn't have a lot of the life skills, the coping skills specifically uh, for navigating the, our college campus and all these thousands and thousands of people. Um, and so, of course, more drinking, more marijuana. Um, I did do well in my classes, but it was all I could do to function. So um, my second year of college, I transferred to another university and my mental health just plummeted. So severe depression, um, more alcohol use, more marijuana, and, and really desperation. And so uh, when I was about 20 years old, I, I had a prescription for sleeping pills. And there is some trauma here for those uh, that, that want to know about that, that um, I had an experience of just absolute desperation and hopelessness. And so I had a lot of these sleeping pills still remaining in the bottle. Uh, I was alone in my dorm room. Uh, everybody was gone for the holidays. And I went into the bathroom and looked at myself in the eyes and said, I, I want out. And, and I took the whole bottle of pills and went back and laid on my bed, fully expecting to die. And for whatever reason, I, I got up a few minutes later. Uh, the effects of all these pills were probably starting to come in. And you know, you could call it God. You could call it my instincts. I call it both. That works. Uh, but my girlfriend at the time, uh, who later became my fiance and then my wife, was staying in the dorms adjacent. And I just found myself walking over there. And the last thing I remember, I, she was, she was in her dorm room. I didn't tell her anything. 
uh, but I just remember passing out. And then the next thing I remember is being carted off into an ambulance through uh, the back doors of, of the dormitories. So it was a major event, a significant suicide attempt. And um, so anyone that's gone through that, there are many of us that have. And for me at that time, I, I went to the ER and, and they have, if you don't know our listeners, charcoal solution that tries to absorb the, the toxins from the, all those pills that you, that you swallow and you drink. So uh, I had that. I didn't know what was going on. And really, I couldn't believe that I was still alive. Uh, it was not a good feeling. I, did, I just couldn't believe it didn't work. And my family came in and, and uh, I remember my grandpa coming in and said, you know, he was just, they were all just scared and said, don't, don't do that again. I can't believe you did this, and, which God rest his soul. You know, that doesn't help uh, a survivor of an attempt like that. So it was very difficult for several years after that. I did survive. I had several other small attempts. Uh, I went to a psychiatric institution for a couple of weeks with no shoelaces, no razor blades. And I had one counselor there who, who asked me about one of my intake answers on the forms. And it was, you know, how much do you drink alcohol per week? <laughs> yeah, a couple of drinks, you know, typical answer from folks like us. Uh, it was not honest. You know, I was drinking much more. But he came back to me in kind of a moment of quiet and downtime and sort of this community time at the facility and, and said, hey, Charles, I wonder if, if you wanted to maybe share a little bit more with me about your alcohol use. And maybe we could take a walk around outside and, and it's a lovely trail. And he kind of knew who I was a little bit. He kind of figured me out. And I said, no, nah, I'm good. Thanks. And, and that's one moment that I can look back and think on, you know, there was an opportunity to reach out for help and, and I just wasn't ready. So I think that that counselor, uh, all these years later, Tony Moon, uh, I've not found him, but uh, if you hear this podcast, thank you. I've tried to find you. So um, I did, you know, obviously go through that event and then sort of shortening the story. I, I took a couple of years off, which a significant uh, suicide attempt or an attempt to end one's own life often creates disruption for years. And it did for me. Uh, I continued to drink. I, I found a part-time job in the town we were living in. I was living with my, my girlfriend who became my fiance um, and just doing the best I could. And she graduated college and, and moved into her career and I went back to school. After a couple of years, I decided to go back to school and pursued a degree in forestry, natural resources sciences at Oklahoma State University. So I went back to school, did very well, had a lot more stability, continuing to drink heavier and heavier uh, throughout those years. Uh, I ended up graduating, did well academically, found a career job almost immediately after college. I was the city forester for the city of Stillwater, very high profile, uh, very high media exposure. Um, and, and a lot of folks loved that position. It was already there. Uh, previous forester recommended me for that. And, and I loved doing that work. It really connected me with community. I got to be genuine and authentic about something I cared about, trees and people and where those things come together. And it was really a good fit for me. 
Now, now the dynamics of city government, not so much. Um, and it was very high stress, extremely high pressure, high stress, high visibility, and uh, and and fairly difficult working environment. And and that led, of course, to more drinking and more mental health challenges. So uh, towards the end of my my drinking history, up to this date, um, I sought out um, residential treatment through the human resources department at, at my employer, and just going in, just sobbing, just sobbing, and just totally defeated. Knew I had a problem with alcohol by this point. Didn't know what to do. I tried therapy. Had gone to maybe a couple of AA Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, and just couldn't couldn't get it. So went to a treatment facility for 30 days, had maybe a, a very simple aftercare plan, was drunk within two weeks, uh, continued to have challenges throughout that year. Um, I left that job and got a job with the state of Oklahoma, and I was serving 11 counties in a job that I really wasn't prepared for and didn't have the training for and certainly didn't have the coping skills uh, to deal with. So drinking again, came back, got worse and worse. Little did I know that my wife had been taking action to help herself. And by this time we had two young daughters and them by preparing for what if, what if I didn't make it and, and how in the world can she move forward with for herself and for our two young daughters? And so what she had been doing, uh, unknown to me, was she had been attending Al-Anon meetings and maybe some therapy also, but she was attending online Al-Anon meetings, which were extremely rare in those days because she had two young kids and, and it's very hard. Uh, it's changed a little bit today, but it's hard to come in with children to the to 12 step meetings. There's not always a place for them and some members don't want them there. So she went uh, to incredible lengths to find some sanity, some resources, and, and really a path forward. Uh, she loved me the whole time, but she was sick and tired of, of my, my drinking, my uncontrollable behavior, just really not knowing if I was going to live or die. And so I can remember a couple of instances where she had um, I had come home from work. I, by this time, I was drinking on the way home from work. I couldn't wait that long to have alcohol. So I would slam a pint of whiskey on the way home, just a terrible idea. Uh, and so one night I had come home and, and she met me at the door and she said, did you make it? And for those listening, if you don't know what that means, uh, if you're in the midst of chaos, you probably do. And that means, did I make it home without drinking alcohol or bringing alcohol home? And I said, yeah, but I might need to go out for some beers later. <laughs> and just just really uh, defeated by alcohol. You know, I'm sure my breath just exuded whiskey. And, and she said, okay. And she turned around and walked away. And that was new. She didn't confront me. She didn't have any more questions for me. She just disengaged, went into the other room, and did what she needed to do. And I didn't know how to handle that. I didn't know what was going on. Why I tell that part of the story and why I share my story at length is really to come to the women in my life who have meant so, so much, including my wife. And I have two daughters 
right? And I have a sister, no brothers, no sons. So I'm surrounded by amazing women. And my wife is uh, the most incredible person that I know. And I say that often to groups of all kinds. And the reason why is because she knew what she needed to do. She was fighting for her life, literally, because my alcoholism was so severe. She was fighting for our two daughters and, and eventually made the most difficult decision that, that she could ever make, which was to leave with our daughters after one night of drunkenness. She'd had enough. So I found out later that she went to a, a YWCA shelter and she had been building resources and connections that could help her in a crisis. And she used those. And I credit my sobriety today on for many things. But I credit that event with being what it finally took for, for me to break through the delusion and the non-acceptance and fighting this thing and thinking that I, I could make it and thinking that my anxiety and depression would be too much and they would overwhelm me without alcohol to finally say, you know what, I can't do it anymore. I just can't. And I've been saying that for five years. But this time something changed and I went to the 30-day treatment facility again. It was exactly one year later from my previous time. And this time uh, I wasn't welcome back home. My wife had said, no, there, there's an option for you. There's a sober living that we found. So she'd been working with the folks at the treatment center to still be supportive and found a sober living uh, uh, facility with a previous counselor running it that I'd known. So I said, okay, it was either that or I was going to drive to Alaska. I tell people that. I had no idea what was in Alaska. Just some delusional trip, right? That's that's how we think. So um, I chose the sober living house, and that's where my life really started to change. So from there, uh, I was there for five months. Uh, my Our youngest daughter had her first birthday. I was not welcome because my wife was still trying to figure out how life was going to work with or without me. And it was very hard for her not to have me at home because I'm a loving and caring person, but under the influence of alcohol, I don't know who I am. It, it could be anybody. So um, she needed to know that she could build that dynamic uh, at home. So I did move back home. Our lives began to change tremendously over that year. Uh, we both worked our programs, meaning we were attending 12-step meetings. We had sponsors. We were bringing that language home. Uh, I was able to be this person that, that your listeners see in here now, instead of a frustrated, angry uh, person who had lost contact with their purpose and meaning in life. And so as, uh, as we did healing, we, came, we moved back home where both of our parents live. So our daughters had access to their grandparents, which, which everybody loved. And this February of 2023, I celebrated 17 years of continuous sobriety which I didn't know was possible. That's amazing. Congratulations on 17 years. Thank you. Your story resonates. Uh, I mean, we this is what we experience most times when we sit down with someone is that there are differences, but there are so many core similarities. You know, the for me, the mental health was a big part of my story as well, trauma and and just kind of when you talked about, you know, having these opportunities to get sober earlier, I also bypassed a few of those wake-up calls um, and just continued on. But I do really think that there's, you have to be ready for this journey, right? And 
the other part of the thread that I want to pull on is the first time you went into treatment, you said you had kind of a basic recovery plan when you leave. And this is one of the reasons that I decided I wanted to be a recovery coach um, because Yes, treatment is wonderful, being able to leave your environment, be surrounded by that, but that's a very safe bubble, right? And when you come out, that's the litmus test. That's when you're back in the same environment with all the stressors, all of the same things. And we see so many people fail. For me, I had a recovery coach that followed me from the treatment center and I worked with him for a year after I got sober. And I even moved countries. You know, you can do amazing things with the support, you know, and, and I didn't have access to online meetings. My closest meet or my, I did have, sorry, I didn't have access to in-person meetings. My closest was five hours away. But when you have support from just one person or two people, it can make all of that possible. So when you came out the second time, what was, was it the sober living that made the, the huge difference or talk a little bit more about that if you would. Yeah, it really was. So what I learned is that I needed that continual support for several months, which actually, if those, you know, again, that are listening, if you do a little research, that first year, the first 12 months typically are what it takes. There's several things that it takes over that first year. Everybody has their unique journey of recovery, but but there are some things that tend to be pretty common. And that's continual support. That's what the illness actually requires for, for a, a lasting recovery is attention over a number of months every day for most of us. And it sure did for me. So yeah, the sober living, it required me again to live out of my element. It's in a town that I'd visited a couple of times, but I of course never lived there. They, um, it, the sober living and oftentimes the sober living houses around the country are in maybe less than desirable parts of a city or a neighborhood. This one was, it was affectionately known as Cracktown, uh, the, the neighborhood that I was in. So there would be, there was people on the street, you know, um, you know, with, with little packets of, of temptation for those that were, were looking for it. Uh, my primary substance was alcohol. You know, I, I drank. I, I, heroin was probably next for me. But what I found on the support side was people similar to me, some very different, but they're all on a similar journey. And that is a life of lasting recovery. So I was with other men. Uh, there were, I think, eight of us, a room for eight of us. We had one roommate. Uh, many don't make it through. They often relapse. And that's part of the illnesses well uh but this time for me i was uh, i was doing everything which i tend to do uh, in, you know whatever's required let's do it let's make things better that's how i'm wired but something had changed and really there was an attitude of acceptance in me i'm like this is the way it is you know i can't change the way it is anymore whatever however i'm wired whatever my challenges are i have to do it without alcohol it's not going to be better uh, and it can be a lot worse. So, you know, I may not die and I may do something I terribly regret. So those were motivators along with that social support. And then the owner of the sober living was a licensed counselor, uh, alcohol and drug counselor. And I knew him. 
So there was a pre-existing relationship that was professional, that was in place. I got access to regular counseling. My wife started coming in for couples counseling when she was ready. So we did that together and we both knew him from my previous stay at that facility. And then uh, I lost my career job, unfortunately. So all that training and all that college, I'm like it's going to be hard to find a job, you know, because I was at a pretty higher level in my field. So you don't want Charles, you know, there was not a lot of uh, talk about recovery or access to resources for addiction or alcoholism. Um, at the time, there were none that I knew of. I'm sure human resources, but it was not, you know, there was no support. So I lost my career job, which then I'm, it, it forced me to do something else. So here I am separated from my family without a career. I was 80 pounds overweight, smoking two packs of cigarettes a day and found out that my roommate uh, had been using pills for months and hiding them. So he had a, a relapse and an overdose in our room. And I'm like, this is the life. This is the life I'm living. Uh, but it was working for me. And I was attending two to three uh, 12-step meetings a day. I had a sponsor. I had a, a grand sponsor, which means a sponsor's sponsor. And, and, and really rich 12-step um, recovery. And this town was known for it. I didn't know that. And, and I met people who changed my life and showed me how to unlock recovery. So yes, absolutely. A uh, long way of saying the sober living and everything that went along with it, including losing my career job. I think I wouldn't wish that on anyone, but it kind of served me. It, it made me focus. So let's talk about that, Charles. Is your focus now? I mean, it sounds like all these all these things that happened to you and, and through your story, it propelled you to do what you're doing now? Recovery started happening. Uh, I got into some other fields. I did AmeriCorps, which I describe as like Peace Corps at home. And I was serving other folks and using some marketing skills that I picked up in public relations and, and mentoring young people. Um, I, I was the, the white person in the room. Uh, I showed up to all these events with a suit on. And, and was just blown away by, by the community that I got to engage with. We raised a lot of money. And I became part of something much, much bigger than myself with folks who don't look like me and may not talk like me. And it was one of the most beautiful years of my life. And then I went on and did another year of AmeriCorps. My wife's a school teacher. I did AmeriCorps at her school for an after-school program. Uh, and she said she thought that would be a good idea. So I said, okay. Did that. Really found that I loved connecting one-on-one -on -one and in small groups. And there was a lot of uh, substance use, um, justice involvement, or you know, parents being incarcerated with this population. And I was hired as a TA for a couple of years, a teacher assistant. The principal really liked what I was doing. And what I found out is that I wanted to do more. I loved being in the school system. I loved fundraising, nonprofit work, supporting others with a mission. And I really started to reflect, what do I need to be up to? And, and it was something similar to what I now do today. I didn't know what coaching was. I thought, well, maybe I could be like an addictions counselor or something or a therapist. I'd started on that track many years ago just to become a psychologist of some kind. So I sort of reconnected with the, the original intentions and thought maybe I was right about some of that. 
did some searching online, found out about life coaching, never heard of it at the time. That was nine years ago. I found a training organization, which is IPEC, the Institute for Professional Excellence in Coaching, enrolled in it and started seeing clients uh, for life coaching. So not addiction recovery, um, halfway through my training and started you know, getting paid to do that. And so I did that for several years. In the last two or three years, I added the addiction recovery piece due to COVID. And I shared my, also, and due to the fact that I share my story very openly, I recover out loud and try to make mm -hmm. it very clear and appropriate. I don't always share it, but where it seems appropriate and maybe helpful, I share it openly. And so folks have started knowing me as a local resource and, and even, you know, nationally, I get some clients um, who are looking to recover and take their recovery to the next level. Well, I realized two or three years ago, I'm like, I want to do something. I want to make a difference in this field as well and add this to my practice. So I searched around and looked at different training programs and went with the International Association for Professional Recovery Coaching. Uh, IAPRC, which is under ICARE, a lot of acronyms. So I went and got trained so I could understand more about family systems and dynamics and some of the uh, components of addiction that maybe I, I was missing and then started to see clients pretty quickly and absolutely. So I've taken a lot of the suffering and the tragedy and the, the loss that I've had in life and that disconnect that I had for myself, especially that's what I want to do with folks. I want to help people connect to who they are, what matters most to them, and then what they want to do with that in the world. That's amazing. And just one more question: Would it, how do you with your um, with your work now? Do you find it to be 50-50, like life coaching recovery? Is there more recovery now? Like kind of the ratio of clients that you have? It's probably seventy thirty right now uh, with life coaching and addiction recovery. So 70% are life coaching and specializing in purpose. Mm -hmm. I work with a lot of leaders, uh, C-suite leaders, uh, business owners, entrepreneurs, and folks that are driven, and they tend to wanna to make a difference either in their own lives or in those that they serve. And, and so I attract a lot of folks around that, um, regional, uh, locally and regionally. And then uh, more and more, I'm serving more folks that identify as being in recovery or sober curious. So that's one of the things I'm interested in. Folks that are looking at tapering, uh, I have a client currently that uh, is coming through what was identified as binge drinking. And and his, his binging is way, way down. Uh, and he's working on himself. He's reconnecting with his family. Um, he's in a, a very high level leadership role. And so, um, folks like that tend to tell others, you know, and so I'm working with a lot more folks in recovery. Then I'm also contracted, I'm contracted with a local university, 95% of the, the population I'm serving, uh, is in recovery. And, uh, I provide coaching services to this program. Um, and. So that's that's wonderful as well. So yeah, it's about 70-30, but if you add those clients in, it's about a 50-50 split. Um, you know, like Heather mentioned, it, it, it doesn't matter, you know, addiction doesn't discriminate. You know, male, female, treatment, no treatment, hit rock bottom, no rock bottom. Like addiction as a whole, even 
just being in recovery, we all tend to share common threads throughout all of our recovery, which I think is absolutely huge. And, you know, just hearing your, um, you know, your story for me personally, you know, there's so much similarities and there's so many, like, for me, there were dark places where I had those thoughts and those what ifs and would it be better? And, you know, all these things to where it is so like addiction is so complex that the recovery is in my view, 10 times more complex because you have so much to unpack to where, you know, you're celebrating 17 years. I just celebrated nine years. Like I'm still unpacking things years down the road that first year was kind of just survival mode and literally taking one day at a time. But from there on out, you know, I'll have moments where I'm like, Ooh, I, I should probably, I should probably dig a little bit deeper with what just happened, whether it's emotionally, you know, physically the whole nine, but like the complexity of recovery is mind blowing. But the beautiful part about it is you can take your time. It's not, I feel like so many people are like, I want to push this button. And then it's just all I, I'm in recovery. I'm sober. I'm good. And I'm like, I, it's a constant, constant learning curve. Um, and then you get exposed to certain situations that, I, I mean, I was just on one where I took 44 kids to DC and I was like, holy Hannah, to the point where, you know, people instantly, my brain was like, I would have been at the bar. <laughs> I need to remove myself from the situation. I need to go to bed, but I have not experienced that for the last nine years, you know? And so it's just this constant evolution that we're going to be in recovery for the remainder. It's not a one and done. Absolutely. And I think that's key for me too. That's how I understand my own recovery journey. This is lifelong. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe the the model of uh, alcohol use disorder, which suggests that it's actually growing and, and becoming progressively worse, mm -hmm. even without my drinking alcohol. So it's not just about alcohol, evidently, yeah. which is really weird. I mean, we're, we're still trying to understand addiction and what in the world it is. There's different models. Is it a medical uh, disease? Is it a is it a brain disorder? It, is it is a social disorder is it a spiritual problem i sure yes um it's all of those and i talk to a lot of experts you know and it's just like we don't know is my best answer but we have some better ideas and and one thing that that's important to note is that um there are different like severities there's different levels of addiction which I didn't know for years. Honestly, I really didn't until I got some more training. So, you know, there's some folks that may not be able to relate to my story at all. I'm just like, wow, why couldn't he just quit? You know, I, I mean, it was hard for me to quit, but I did, they might say. For me, it was like breathing. You know, it, it was not the type of option where I could just say, 
oh, you know, this is a hard day, but I think I won't drink. It was my guts and my brain screaming at me that you better get a drink or or it's going to be bad. And then I'd get a drink and it would be really bad. So, I mean, there was no winning. That's what creates that desperation. So, yeah, absolutely. For me, it's I believe that my condition is progressive. It's still developing into the surface. If I were to go back out and drink, no telling. I mean, I would probably be in prison or dead pretty quick. But I don't have to today because I've created a life to where I don't want to escape it. Or I want to escape it less often and in not the same ways that I used to, right? I still have some of the underlying conditions that may never go away, but I don't have to respond like I used to. And that's what recovery coaching is all about. That's what this living life in recovery out loud is all about. You're not alone. Your journey may be a little bit different, but we all know what it's like to struggle with this. And those of us that are fortunate enough to be on the other side of it get to share what it's like on this side and say, you can do it too. Here's some ideas and come along for the ride. It's going to be worth it. And I, thank you for, for sharing your story and, and all that you provided, you know, with, with your story and information today. And it all comes to me, comes back to your attitude of acceptance and what I was thinking of what Meredith was saying and what you were saying with your story. It, it is, it's truly an attitude of acceptance. Once you accept that this is the, the new lifestyle and this is the way you need and want to live your life, sober and in recovery, that attitude of acceptance, like that propels you into that purpose. It propels you into keeping yourself in recovery and not reaching for the bar or the drink, you know, in certain circumstances. Um, and I just, I, I've been holding on to that, that little statement this whole time is that attitude of acceptance that for whatever reason really um, took a tug on my heart because um, I have, I have a, a family member who's, who's suffering quite badly with addiction and, and other issues at the moment. And I realize that there is no acceptance yet. And, and that is the biggest right now for that person and um you know it really it just really brings it to heart so thank you for saying that and thank you for for really um living your acceptance this is really what we're all doing i agree 100 percent, and uh, yes it is so that thread you picked up on that really is at the core and, you know, I've done so much like spiritual work and inner work that I'd never probably would have gotten around to doing if it weren't for this illness, uh, which is, I guess, a blessing. But, you know, I'm not grateful to be a person with alcoholism, but I am thankful for the life that I get to live now. So uh, and that's acceptance. You know, I wish it were different. It's not. This is the way it is. I'm thankful. Uh, because I have a solution. I have a pathway and a series of pathways now that work for me in, in very different circumstances that I couldn't I couldn't deal with before. Uh, you know, sharing so, um, I hope, genuinely or at least openly right now, I couldn't do that before, you know, in, in my other life. I would have been so guarded and and it still takes courage. I mean, and still have some anxiety and fear about doing things like we're doing right now. 
but I'm able to do it. I'm able to manage some of those symptoms because I know how important it is and I know how meaningful it is. So acceptance is really a part of my day today. It's I'm big into intentional living. I don't always do it. I'm big into mindfulness. I'm not always mindful. It's not required. You know, what's required is to know that the present moment exists. You can always have access to it. I don't always live in it. But when I stray from it, like I do, because I'm busy and I get distracted and overwhelmed, then I come back to it because I know what's there isn't scary. And I found a way to be in this body, who I am, what I'm really all about, and how to bring that out to the world. And that's what I needed all those years ago, just to be able to be this person. Everything else is icing on the cake. For sure. And I, I don't, I'm not a grateful, I'm not, I've heard people say grateful alcoholic. I'm not a grateful alcoholic. I'm a grateful woman in recovery, you know, because for me, recovery, because I'll pick up food or something else mm -hmm. that just, I can't deal with my emotions or I, like you said, coping, right? Like it's all about developing better coping skills. So today in the 17 year con of continuous sob sobriety, what is part of your recovery today? What is essential? What tools do you use most often? Yeah, one of my biggest is that I went into forestry, if you, if you all remember that, that was my career path. And I went into forestry because I had really positive experiences of camping with my family and extended family outdoors and beautiful locations in Oklahoma. And it was really lodged in my memory and in my heart. And, and I wanted to, to do some of that, you know, I wanted to get out in the world and be there all the time. And, and so nature is huge for me uh, in a world of, an, you know, increasing technology and digitization, which is, it has wonderful benefits. It can lead for me to a disconnect from the actual world, meaning the natural world, the world we actually live in and we're breathing oxygen from all day long. <laughs> you know, that's where it comes from. So um, reconnecting with the natural world is grounding. Uh, it's crucial. Uh, I'm a musician also. And so I, I play acoustic guitar these days. I used to play electric and, you know, a lot harder songs. I play more acoustic songs now when I sing. It doesn't have to be for anyone. It's part of my spiritual life. Uh, but I do play for small groups also. So playing the guitar, singing, and then I write. Uh, I'm a poet and a writer. And so I'll write poems that people may never see, or maybe they will, some of them. Uh, and then being around people that, that that want to make a difference in the world. That's why I developed the business model that I did and, and the brand that I did, which has a tree in it, by the way, a little bonsai tree. So <laughs> so it's still I still kept the tree in the natural world. So I was very intentional about that. So really, I'm surrounded by a business that I want to be a part of, you know, and I, I get along with myself most of the time, even as a person with super high expectations. Um, I can I found ways to really get along with myself. So that acceptance piece and and self-compassion and and learning how to be more gentle in the world and kinder, especially as I get older. That's the that's the theme. Uh more much more about love, not as much about outcomes and achievement, although I am wired for those things too. So really just knowing who I am, what I'm all about, and trying to stay connected. So connection is central to all of that. I love that. And I, you know, I think 
we think that as we get through the years of recovery, that it just becomes easy peasy. And just like Meredith said, you know, like you just have to do this every day. That's the one thing you have to do. You have to get up every day and work your program because that's all we have is today. And that's all, you know, all any of us can do because we don't know what the future holds. So I think it's really important for someone that's in long-term recovery to, you know, to speak to, to that, that it's still, you know, it's still a daily practice. And um, I know my tools changed. The ones that I needed in those first couple of years are different than the ones that I need now. And I'm still building and developing new tools, as you said. Um, so thank you so much for sharing your time and your story and your inspiration. Um, any last words or anything else that we haven't hit on that you want to talk about today? Well, spirituality and my faith, I should say, that's core also. If people hadn't picked up that, I assume people did. But if you didn't, absolutely. So prayer, I really nerded out. Like I'm an inward looker, contemplative person. So I nerded out about all these different prayer practices and got training and <laughs> have done different traditions. I'm a practicing Christian, but I have a lot of deep experience with Buddhism. And I've led mindfulness retreats and creativity retreats. So really just being surrounded by a, a deep connection with what is and how it is. So I think in closing, I would say, you know, maybe a message of hope, you know, because addiction will take your hope away and it will shred it. It did mine on a daily basis. So there's hope for anyone listening. If you're caught up in this struggle, if you're the one who's struggling or if you're a family member, there is hope. There is a path with your name on it. And I believe that. So it takes what it takes, but there's lots of resources if you reach out. I know once I started to really regularly, daily reach out for help, and I still do, I have people that I can count on. So find some people that you can count on that maybe know more about this than you do. Reach out and, and give this a try. It's worth everything that it takes. I'm telling you, I didn't realize this type of life would be possible as a recovering escape artist, as I often call myself, I don't have to escape life anymore. And if I do, I question myself, is it healthy? Is it fun? Is it going to harm anyone? I didn't have those tools before. So reach out. There's hope for you. That's wonderful. And that's a great place to end. So thank you so much for your time. And to all our uh, podcast listeners, if you like what you hear, please follow us on your um on your platforms, send us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Charles. See you next time. Thank you, Charles. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate you and wish you the best on your sober adventures. For more information and details on upcoming episodes, check us out on YouTube or Instagram at Four Sober Chicks. That's number four sober chicks. We welcome your feedback and look forward to being with you on the next episode.